You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So speaking of uh, prophetic words that you put in notebooks, um, this one time, uh, right before 2020, this uh, person gave me this uh, word. There's some words you write, write down in the, in the moleskin um, as soon as you get them and you like cherish them and hold on to them. And then sometimes people give you words and you're like, I just rebuke that and I bind it and I throw it away. I don't want that one. Um, but, um, but sometimes, you know, the, the things that God will say to us um, are, are sweet and sometimes they, they require um, a little bit of struggle. And so this guy uh, came to me, um, this was another pastor friend, and um, it was right before 2020. And he said, um, I feel like uh, this is going to be a year of shaking, is what he said. And I was like, I don't receive that. I was like, 2020 is supposed to be the year of vision and the year of clarity. And so we're going to go take, this, take the, the world by storm. And this is going to be an awesome year for families and nations and, and neighbors. And, uh, and then we all live 2020 and figure out which one of us was right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, he said, um, as before anything happened, is the end of November 2019. He said, I feel like 2020 is going to be a year of shaking because um, when, um, when stuff gets shaken, um, it's a gift in disguise because it reveals the shaky things in our lives. When you shake things, uh, the unshakable things become very, very uh, obvious and revealed, and then the unshakable things become more precious to you because they're unshakable in the middle of shaking things. And, um, and so we walked through all that. We walked through the masks. We walked through the election cycle of that year. We walked through uh, all the screens that you'd ever want to get a hold of. You know, we were all obsessed with our Steve Jobs iPhone until that's all we could look at for about uh, four straight months, and, and it was awful. And, um, and so... I was speaking with, with a friend, and, and, and uh, he helped me get some language for um, my journal. It wasn't a prophetic thing, but it was just something that he uh, said. It stuck out to me. Um, and uh, he, he was speaking about the last couple years. This is now 2023 and reflecting back on 2020. Of uh, Sometimes when stuff gets hard, one of the gifts of that stuff getting hard is that uh, you lose your give-a-darn. Anybody know what I'm talking about with this? Uh, you kind of lose the give-a-darn factor. It's like when you're running in that race and you get to mile 20, you're just like, I kind of don't care how cute my, like, running tights are anymore. Like, I peed them a while ago, and so now that's over, you know? So you're just like, you know, you just kind of settle into it, and you're like, I just want to finish this. Like, you know, you're not going for style points. You're just going for obedience. You're just trying to finish the thing the way you started out with. And so 2020, it turned out for me personally, I don't know about you, but 2020 was a year that was a, it was a, a struggle, but it was sweet at the same time. Because um, it was a time that I read the Bible more than ever. It just felt like that's all the time I really had to do. And, uh, and I read the Bible, you know, th- three different years. And I think even more so than checking off a thing on a, I'm a Bible list plan. It's like I think I'd gone through some things before 2020 that made me wanted to understand what God had to say um, for himself. Like there's something about a sermon. A sermon's great because it hopefully offers up a sense of uh, a third-party conversation between, you know, the preacher, the speaker, and God and speaking about the room. But there's something about hearing a third-party conversation and having a first-party conversation with the Scripture. And there were questions in my mind that I just needed to get set straight, and COVID set that up for me, that I dug through the Bible and I read through it three different times. And I was able to, to land my feet on different things that, I, that God's heart is and and. Sometimes, you know, it's not only the words, but the tone of the way that the voice comes out and the way that the hermeneutic emerges and how the, the, the dots get connected throughout Scripture. And I listen to all the Bible Project and the, all the different um, resources that are available for us on the World Wide Web, but we don't have the time to do, deal with it. And I, and I learned how to read the Bible. 2020 was also a gift that I learned how to pray. And it's funny how once I stopped trying to pray, I started praying. I stopped making it a task list, and I made it into a conversation. It was all that I could do to stay, you know, grounded and, and just, just walk around my neighborhood, not to freak out, because it was the only way I could just kind of 
get out my motions and process where I was. And it was funny how once I stopped praying and just started talking, I started praying for the first time with God. And um, it was really interesting that 2020 taught me the value of church because sometimes when you have something, you don't know what you have till it's gone. It's only in the footprint when you, when you remove the foot that you see the imprint of, of what's missing when we don't have the church. I mean, if anything, like, I don't know what you make of it, but like if, 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 if what God does to discipline us sometimes is just to hand us over to the thing he wants to keep us from just to show us what it can do and what it can't do. He certainly taught us a lot about our screens in that couple of years, did he not? Like, you want to have screens and worship Steve Jobs and just believe that, you know, the future is the iPhone and do church online? Like, figure out what that does for you after three months and really, I mean, that's a gift to really get handed over to that and really, you know, to hear everybody's tone deaf, you know, singing in church for the first time back after three months and you realize how much you love it once it's gone and, and even seeing people's eyes past their masks and being so excited just to have somebody in the room and not have to record a sermon on YouTube. Um, all these things were, were, were beautiful gifts. And so, um, and so uh, we, we are in, in, in Mark chapter 6, and uh, where we are, uh, starting in verse chapter 6, is, is we, are, um, we, are, we are right back at this place where we're having all the disciples at one place at one time. It's, it's a formalized rallying point where Jesus gets all the 12 together, nobody's missing, uh, nobody's added. It's just the 12, him and the 12 in chapter 6, and he's, and he's speaking to them. And, and it's a way that we haven't seen really since chapter 3. Chapter 3 was when all the 12 came together and they listed off all the different names and the roll call. And now chapter, chapter 6 is the same thing, same idea to all 12 disciples in Jesus. And, 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 and we're recognizing that, that chapter 6 is a continuation, but it's also distinct. And that chapter 6, compared to 3, is about the sending of disciples. Chapter 3 was about the calling of disciples. It's the naming of the disciples. It's the confirmation of their identity as, as the new Israel and as, and as Christians and as followers of Jesus. But, but chapter 6 is different in the sense it's not just about coming to Jesus, but going for Jesus. Not just coming to see who Jesus is, but going to make what Jesus made. And so, so, so there's a calling and then there's a sending. And to me, as we just kind of land the plane really with Mark and get into some holiday, you know, Christmas um, theme stuff for, for the next couple of Sundays... It's, it's a chance to, to, to collect our thoughts over the last couple of chapters and consider what is it that, that made the disciples ready for this sending? What is it that happened between chapter 3 and chapter 6 that couldn't have happened in chapter 3 before it happened in chapter 6? What, what's, what's different between 4 and 5 that allows chapter 6 to represent something that different than chapter 3? What's the difference between the sending and the calling? And the, and the dis, distance and the difference between the sending and the calling, if you, as you really look at it, is, uh, is, is a whole bunch of struggle when I go back and read it. As you read it um, from chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, is the disciples are called, and as soon as they're called, they're sent right into this boat. <laughs> no ifs, ands, or buts, no waiver that's signed. Your mom's not allowed to come and be a helicopter parent. You've got to get in this boat and bring your doggy bag because these waves are about to be four times the size of this boat. That's, if anything, a little bit of a looming proposition and, and a foreshadowing of what's about to happen. That he, he, he throws them into these waves. And then as soon as they get out of the waves, and almost as soon as they dust the sand off of their clothes, they get confronted with this guy chained to a graveyard, screaming out these utterances of demonic uh, oppression. And Jesus speaks to this guy, releases this guy of demons. Not only one demon is cast out of this guy, but thousands of demons are, are set apart. And then after that, we, we barely make our way back across the lake, and, and we're confronted with these two precious, beautiful, but fragile daughters that are on their last limb on their last string, this daughter that has been suffering with the issue of bleeding for 12 years, and then this other daughter who has been alive for 12 years and then wakes up and realizes that she's dying. 
And Jesus has to speak to each of these situations and healing them. All of that to say that Jesus is not a helicopter parent. And he has no problem with exposing you and I to struggle and even profound evil. That part of our process between the calling and the sending is exposing to the kingdom of evil. Because if we don't understand the kingdom of evil, we can't understand the kingdom of heaven. In the deepest and the darkest, um, uh, direst situations for humanity, that, that God is not withholding us from that, but actually he's sending us into those things. And that stuff is not wasted on us. That suffering and struggle is not superfluous or it's not random but it's actually highly intentional and strategic and necessary because we're realizing that the struggle is for the sending. By the end of this chapter, by the end of this chapter 6, the disciples are not just exposed to evil, but they are empowered over evil. They are not just told to agree with Jesus, but they actually begin to do what Jesus did. They have authority to cast out demons. The demons are not just afraid of Jesus by the end of this chapter, but they're afraid of the disciples. Secondly, that they don't just agree with Jesus, they do what Jesus did. They, they walked in his instruction, and they saw the kingdom of evil press back amidst the kingdom of heaven, and they walk in the power of Jesus. And so all that to say, as I was praying earlier and even burdened in sermon preparation you know, this week, I, I've been through lots of seasons of ministries, and, and life is no walk in the park for sure. But this has just been a strange, um, to me, maybe I'm the Kevin Bacon in the room that connects to all you guys and hear all of your stories. Maybe it's always been happening. I've only just been listening. But people in this church are struggling right now. There's been a lot um, that's been going on. And if you're in this boat, then maybe um, take solace and empathy in the fact that other people in this room are also struggling, even if you don't know it. And if you're not, then take solace that maybe you have gifts and strengths for people that are struggling in their moment right now. But there are people going through it right now in their marriages in ways that they've never gone through it before. Feels like they haven't been prepared for it. Feels like it wasn't uh, congruent with the calling that they have. Makes them want to throw the Bible up against the, the wall because it doesn't seem like it's matching up with what their calling said. Struggling with maybe, maybe the, the attrition rate of singleness. Like it's not just singleness, but it's, it's the compounding feeling of whatever spiritual or emotional ties are, are, are tied up in that, that prayer moment of, of singleness or fertility. There are people going through fertility. Um, situations that you might be mindful and prayerful of at City Lights. There's people going through legal issues in this room uh, that you might be praying for that are really needing God to move on their behalf um, when it comes to stuff out of their control. There are people going through financial things and mental health things, and just to be aware always, but, but also that in, in intense seasons of struggling, to, to be reminded that we are, we are like these disciples, that the gospel is a picture, but it's also a mirror. This gospel has come to us to teach us who Jesus is, but also who we are in light of him. And that the moments, the, t- the moments between the mountains, the moments between three and six are not in vanity. That, that three, four, five, and six are not separate stories. They are one singular story to prepare us for this moment. The calling prepares us for the sending. And the struggle that you and I are in, whether it's on that list that I just mentioned or the one that I didn't mention that falls through the cracks in the categories that maybe no one else in this room struggles with, is the struggle is not for vanity. And it's not for destruction. It is for the sending. The struggle is for the sending. If you've ever had a counselor before in your life, it's been a blessing. And by that, I mean they can't be flattered off of telling you the truth. When you look into their eyes, you're not just seeing their strengths. What you are seeing also, aside from their strengths, is you're seeing their struggle. You're seeing the, the, the valleys that they've walked in with Christ. When you have a teacher that is, maybe she's five foot six and she's a, she's a you know, six-year-old lady, but she's not going to get stood up by that football player, and she knows how to speak to him with authority. That teacher has that authority. It comes from somewhere. It's not her strengths. It is Christ, if, it, if it's real authority. 
That, that, that teacher that comes, that, that when you look in their eyes, you're not just seeing their, 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 their strengths, but you're seeing Christ. That police officer, that person that pulls you over or comes into a crisis situation when everyone else is running the wrong way, the reason why their heart is not hardened and, 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 and calcified by, by the ongoing darkness of, and depravity of humanity, if, if there is any softening of their heart, it is because of the Holy Spirit and because of Christ inside of them over these years. Uh, because ultimately the struggle is not um, for pointlessness or aimlessness. The struggle is for the sending, for the sending of people. All right, Mark chapter 6, and then in verse 6 it says this. It says, then, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. You know, that word right there at the beginning of the verse that says then makes me think something special is about to happen. You know, then this happened. But then the funny thing about it is that there's nothing unnormal about the end of this verse. Then Jesus went around doing what he always did <laughs> from village to village. Well, that's because the then part of it, the special uh, a turn signal that's going to point us to the special part about this verse actually happens in verse 7. Verse 7, then the calling of the 12 happened. Calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two. And so Jesus has up in verse 6 what's called the village ministry in the sense that I don't think Jesus is scared of stadiums, but he goes to villages. And that's because a village is sociologically, at least 100 people, something around 100 to 200 people. And a village usually is defined, you know, apart from a city or a nation, as a place where everybody knows everybody. You know, the village is the place that you know the person, the baker and the librarian and, every, and the nurse and so forth. The village is the place where people know people. That Jesus, you know, when, when he preaches the gospel, if he were to get on Instagram and say so and so, how many people were saved, he wouldn't put numbers, he'd put names. <laughs> he would say, this is when Jill, Jill was saved and this is ben, when Ben was saved and this is when... Mark was saved, and so on and so forth. Jesus wants to do a village ministry more than a stadium ministry. But to do a a village ministry, in verse 7, he has to call a family ministry, the 12 that are gathered around him by name and not by number. And to launch a family ministry, it has to be mobilized by a discipleship ministry, that inside of that, it's just two. Well, really, there's three, because when two or more gather, the Holy Spirit is with them. But that's Jesus doing what he always does, but he's doing it for the first time through multiplication. But by the end of this chapter... If, if the math uh, offers up right, he's not just re- reaching 120 people. Multiplying by a factor of six, he's reaching 720 people because a village ministry is mobilized by a family ministry and a family mem- ministry is mobilized by discipleship. And if those six pairs of disciples go out and multiply themselves, each one reach one, that by the end of the chapter, there'd be 4,320 people reached because Jesus is not doing addition, he's doing multiplication. Jesus came not to make fans but followers, people that don't just know about Jesus but know him, People that don't just like him, but are like him. And people that don't just agree with him, but do what he would do if he were here. That a village ministry needs to be met by a family ministry, and a family ministry needs to be met by a discipleship ministry. And so all that's mobilized by Jesus, it says in verse 7, by giving authority to his church, giving authority to disciples. There's a little hint at the very end that, that, that tells us kind of what this word authority means. You know, there's, there's sort of... Um, dispensations, I guess, that have to happen throughout the Bible, like um, Pentecost can't happen at the beginning of Mark's life. It just so happens we were born after Pentecost, but Mark had to wait on Pentecost. And so we were born into something that he had to borrow. There's this word at the very end of the passage that says oil, that they were healing them by oil, but we all know that olive oil can't heal people. What's the only real thing that can heal somebody but the power of the Holy Spirit? And so without really saying it overtly, it's saying it implicitly, when it says that they were given authority to what we were really born into in Christ in the baptismal. They were, they were actually not given oil. They were given the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, whether or not they had language for it or not, or theology for it, they had the authority of Jesus. 
Now, authority is different than power because authority is what's right, not are you able to do it, but is it right for you to do it? So, for example, if I go in there and I flip on the light, the light is not going to have to have an arm wrestling match over the darkness. I've never seen a light get into a rock, paper, scissors about who's going to win, right? Like the light turns on and has authority over darkness, and so darkness is never, you know, extinguished by the light. Like the light extinguishes darkness, so on and so forth. That, you know, an apple far from the tree is going to be gravity, and when you throw your beach towel into the ocean, I've never gotten the ocean dry with the beach towel, right? The beach towel is going to get wet because it has authority. And so authority is not just can I do it, it's like should I do it. It's not just am I capable, but is it right to do? And so here's what's happening, um, you know, theologically in this moment before, you know, there's, there's language in Jesus' wisdom of revelation and, 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 and rolling that out for these disciples, is that they are getting the rights of Jesus, the rights of Jesus. Before anybody has the rights of Jesus, everybody has the rights of Satan. That as we, as we traveled away from the garden, we are exiled from the garden, then uh, we gave our rights to Satan, and, and we got Satan's rights. We got the evil, the kingdom of evil's rights. The reason why people outside of Christ can be oppressed by demons is because that, that sin, the consequence of sin is death, and we have, we have the right to tormentation. We have the right to addiction under sin. We have the right to betrayal under sin. We have the right to offense under sin. We have the right to bitterness under sin. But under Jesus, we have none of those rights. That Jesus took on our rights on the cross and gave us his rights. He gave us his authority, which means that we're not no longer under the rights of the enemy, but we're actually over all of the evil principalities in this, in this world. So here's the difference between, you know, the U.S. Constitution and the way that Satan does things, is that Satan doesn't read us our Miranda rights. When he comes and attacks us, he doesn't tell us the rights that we have in Jesus, and he thinks and he knows that if he can trick us, we could forfeit the very rights that we actually have. But here's what Jesus is telling us that's loaded in this one little verse that he gave these people to borrow authority and gave us to be born into the authority of Jesus is that Satan has no more rights over us. Here's what that means. What does that mean? That means that you have no more right in Jesus for jealousy and jealousy has no right for you. That the thought of jealousy, if you have a thought of jealousy in your head, that's an unbaked thought. And that is, that, is a, that is a thought that has gone around the authority of Jesus. It has no right to you if you are in Christ. And so you have no right, and jealousy has no right over you. You have the right of joy in your life because of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, and the only right you have for the thought in your mind right now is joy. And that is the authority that you have. That's what Jesus gave you because that is your right. You have no right to bitterness anymore in Christ. Bitterness is something that has come from the enemy when the enemy had authority over you, and that was your right, and that was your a consequence for sin, that's the life that we would inherit, but that is not our right anymore. We have no right to bitterness, and bitterness has no right over us. We have the right to peace, and peace has the right to us. We have no right to pride anymore, and pride has no right to us. Instead, we have tenderness. We have no right to offense anymore, and offense has no right to us. We only have forgiveness. We have no right to addiction. Addiction has no right to us. We only have the right of freedom and the right of Jesus. And so authority is like a gift. The best gifts are the things you have to work on. Like I'm going to give, you know, you give somebody a guitar at Christmas, and that guitar isn't going anywhere. It's my guitar. If somebody gave it to me, and if I gave it to you, it's your guitar. But just because I gave you a guitar doesn't mean you know how to play it. And so authority is a lot, a lot like that. Um, and, that um, and that these gifts, you know, the years of 2020 and the 2021 and the 2023 are shaking us to understand what has the greatest authority. That whether or not we want to or not, or our knees bow now or later, that ultimately... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and anyone that says, 
um, something contrary to what God says, even if everybody says it and he says it's right, then everyone's a liar and he's telling the truth because he has authority. And lights have no problem with, with extinguishing, extinguishing darkness. And so here's what these years have taught us. Just like gravity has authority and just like light has authority and just like water has authority, to my beach towel, that Jesus has authority in our life and, um, and, he, and he is uh, establishing the kingdom of heaven and where the light has gone, the darkness can't extinguish it. So he goes on and he doesn't just give authority, but he gives us instructions for authority. And, um, and instructions, uh, when you get instructions, pretty much imply something that, that instructions, when somebody gives you instructions, it pretty much implies that if I didn't give you the instructions, you'd probably do it wrong. Like, for example, I don't have to tell my kids to get on the Nintendo Switch and play Nintendo because they just already do it, right? Uh, if, if I give somebody rules, it means that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm forewarning them that potentially if you don't have these rules with the authority of Jesus, uh, you might take this and misunderstand it. You might abuse it. You might neglect it. You might try to redefine it on your own terms. But the authority comes with instructions. And the instructions are telling us really what the authority of Jesus is here to do and how it is that we can use the authority the way it was meant to be used. So verse 8 says this. It says, uh, these were his instructions. It says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, and no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Verse 10 says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I don't need to tell my kids to... Um, cook spaghetti in my microwave and not put a cover over it because they just do it on their own. I don't need to tell my kids to leave dishes. I don't need to tell my kids to play video games because uh, 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 we don't need instructions for things we're going to do automatically. Okay? So these instructions must come to us in, uh, in, in, in uh, preemption and trying to get around what we might misuse or misunderstand or abuse about the kingdom of God. And so here are the three instructions that you'd see over, over, over our shoulder, probably things that we would need these instructions to do. And these are the three that I read. Number one, uh, Jesus is saying that we have authority in him to go into villages on his behalf and take nothing. Instruction number one is to take nothing. Not to take a shirt, not to take a, uh, a bread or bag or anything else, to take nothing. Number two, things that we might have done, unless he told us the instructions to do otherwise, uh, to not stay in our house, but to enter into the house. And number three, to shake the dust. Number one, take nothing. Number two, enter the house. Number three, shake the dust. So uh, in the 90s, um, I was a big uh, magic kid. I was, you know, seven, and I would go see David Copperfield. Uh, if you guys remember him, he was the guy with the tiger and the lions, and he would, like, um, have this lady come up there, and he would saw the lady in half, and then, you know, she would disappear from the stage or something, and then she, he'd put her back together again. And I thought that was just impressive and awesome until the 2000s when I turned on YouTube and I was introduced to the guy named David Blaine. Has everybody seen David Blaine before? David Blaine does street magic. He's not on the stage. He's out on the street, and uh, he's just doing magic, and I'm 39 years old, and I can't tell you in front of a pulpit right now at church, I'm not so sure he's not magic. Like, I don't know how, if you've seen him on YouTube, David Blaine does the things that he does, but I think he sold something to get what he's got, because I just don't understand why he talks so creepy and how he's doing what he's doing, and so the first time I ever saw him in New Jersey or something, he was out there, and he's flying, He's not pulling a rabbit out of a hat or, you know, telling you that you pulled the two of spades. He's levitating off the ground, and we're in New Jersey, and there's no strings, and we're out in the middle of the park, and we're putting our hand on it, and he's just flying. I don't know what to tell you about that, okay? Um, 
Now, recently in the 2018, I think it was, he started this thing, um, and he starts doing these tricks on celebrities. And if there's anything we trust, we don't even trust our politicians. We'd better trust a celebrity. I mean, people really care about that. And so, you know, Margot Robbie is in her apartment. She's from all these movies or whatever. So Margot Robbie is, 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 this is the, I can't even explain this trick, let alone the fact that he did it. It was just insane. She was looking at her cell phone and Googled the first thing that came to her mind and scrolling down, this is, okay, think about it, thinking of a thought, Googling it, whatever the ping is, going down to the fifth link, clicking the link and scrolling all the way down and highlighting one word on her cell phone. And then at the same time, thinking about a childhood memory. She's got a Google search and a childhood memory. And, and, and David Blaine gets, the, gets the, the friend's hand and writes in a Sharpie the word inconspicuous and rabbit on the hand. And she starts crying. It was insane. I mean, what are you even doing? Reading people's minds? That's insane. He really, this is the last one I'll do. What he really got me with is he went to, went to Harrison Ford. Now, Margot Robbie, you could trick her, but Harrison Ford, you can't trick Han Solo. Like, now we know you're really doing business, okay? And so he went over to Harrison Ford's house. I mean, have you seen this? And got him to pick a card, any card, and put it back in the deck. And, I mean, that's, I couldn't pull that off. Puts it back in the deck and sits the deck over here. And I think there's a picture behind me. And then has Harrison Ford point to a grapefruit in his bowl. He's in his million-dollar kitchen with all the Williams-Sonoma pans, and he points to this little grapefruit and cuts it in half, and the nine of spades or diamonds or whatever is in the dude's grapefruit. And he was like, get out of my house. And I was like, exactly. That's not serious business. Like, Pharaoh had magicians too. Like, what in the world is going home? Okay. And, and so, like, like there, there's a difference between when, when people come out to the big show and you see the big magic trick show, and there's a difference when people go out in the street. Like, when Jesus is saying, like, arguably, this is probably the best way to argue. Like, I think that churches should be invitational, but I, I think the Scripture is saying churches are not there to be attractional. They're there to be missional. Like, like if ministry is happening, we should have ministry on the stage, but, like, the powerful thing about the streets is that there's no music there. There's no momentum of like majority where there's a critical mass of everybody saying amen. There's no, there's no money and lights and sound and things that are compelling in video. There's just you. And it reminds us when Jesus calls us out onto the streets and into our neighborhoods and cubicles, like that's actually not a liability. That is the greatest resource because the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in services. It dwells in you. That you, minus the shirt and the bag and the money and the sound and all the stuff that can cause the Ouija board or whatever to move, like you out there doing what you do, carrying the power and the authority of Jesus plus and minus nothing is the way that the kingdom of heaven moves forward. This is what they want more than anything, more than the sermon. They want somebody that can listen to them with the empathy of Christ and hear and respond and, and give body language and posture to the, to the character of Jesus. And only you can do that. Church services can't do that. And to share and to, to be heard and to hear a story, like a real conversational story. Like, of course, it fits on the YouTube screen. Of course, the guy comes down with the sparkling jacket and hears the prophetic word in his ears and heals somebody in the crowd. Like, of course, we've seen that on TV, you know? But like you, in your cubicle, in your gym outfit, sweaty and at the coffee and, and running at the turkey trot or whatever it is that you're doing, you, out in the streets and not from the stage, you and I, this is where the kingdom of God is coming because when it is that we take nothing, we can see the power of God minus us. Secondly, he says this instruction to enter the house. To enter the house, which reminds us that 
as Christians, we're not just growing to be benevolent guests, but we're also growing to be generous, benevolent hosts, but we're also growing to be generous guests. That we're not just learning how to do hosting, we're also learning to do, to become guests. And uh, so I, you know, my story, if you've ever heard before, um, I'm not born in a believing home, and uh, my uh, youth pastor named Isaac came out, and he was like stocky and stout, and just kind of had like a bit of a uh, good-looking jawline, and uh, came out there to my tennis match and didn't know me. Like, like people that need us to come visit them the most probably don't ask us to come visit them. I didn't even know that I needed him to visit, but knowing now in the way that God wrote my story, like, it was an essential uh, altar point for me as Isaac decided to cross out of Granger, Indiana, to go to South Bend, Indiana, to come see my JV doubles tennis match. Because every mile that he drove sent a message to me. And so he showed up and he opened his Thunderbird for his wife, Rhonda, and I said, I don't know who he is and I don't know what that is and I, that's different from the world that I come from, but I'm following the guy that he's following. I want to figure out what his life is like. And so sometimes hospitality is about serving. Sometimes it's about uh, portraying a purified vision of God, of seeing the way that your family is or the way that your house is, the way that you decorate things. It's a clairvoyant way to, to demonstrate and illustrate the kingdom of God. But sometimes hospitality is not always about kingdom. Sometimes it's just about control. Sometimes I need you to come to my house because I like to decide what we're going to eat. And I like to decide what the conversation is going to be. And I like to see ministry happening when I have all of the, the pieces put together. But Jesus is saying that ministry sometimes, I guess, will be done at your table. But oftentimes, it'll be about le- you leaving your table to go sit at someone else's table. To eat what they're eating. To hear what they're saying. To see the surrounding environment that, that they're in. And in so doing, you know, it's like all of those miles, like, a, like an, sometimes it's like an ounce of, of going to somebody's house is worth a pound of them coming to your house because they know that every mile that took the, for you to get to their house represented a drive for you to go there to serve them. And also that the authority that you're bringing, that you're walking, you don't need your home and your control and your, and your tight little, tidy little, you know, cleanliness guidelines to see the kingdom of God come, that the kingdom of God can come wherever you walk. And when you go to that home, you, you start to be able to see their struggle. And, and empathize with what God is doing in their life and not so much what's going on in your life, that you're going to be able to see the kingdom come into their life and to pray not only with empathy but also authority. And lastly, um, because we're not just people pleasers, we're servants of Jesus, because we serve God and not just people, it says to shake the dust. And I like that um, this gives me a sense of solace that if he says that, he, that if, if people hated Jesus, they're probably going to hate the church because if they hate the child-loving, miracle-working, healing, truth-telling person, they're certainly going to... Um, not always loved the sometimes counterfeit versions of him in us. And so it gives us this permission, really, that although we can give an answer to everything, we don't have to argue with anybody. You don't have to win an argument with anybody. And that actually the people that are, that are losing as we spend more and more time trying to win over people that are rejecting, you understand that every yes is a no. And every moment that we're spending with somebody that is not ready for the gospel, we're missing a moment with somebody that is. And so this, it's, it's not a, it's not a either, you know, it's either or. And, and, and so, and so here's a question that I think we all might consider as we continue to walk out our days in the Holy Spirit and, and want to use his authority in the way that he's given it is to, is to basically is to ask a question that I've written down on this, on my iPad here that draws a, a firm enough line. Like, like if, if it's, if the question is not firm enough and clear enough that someone's able to reject it, then it's not clear enough for somebody to accept if you're not able to, if, if we're not able to draw the line 
of rejection, which Jesus seemingly says that we should be doing, that we have no way to ask people to call into the line of acceptance. And here's the question I think you might ask for somebody that God maybe has sent to you in your classroom, in your family, somebody that you've gone on a walk with or seen in the neighborhood as you've gone on your walks and so forth, is this question, are you now ready to follow Christ? I think that's a powerful question. Are you now ready to follow Christ? Because the good things about questions like this is that this question is our line. And it's a beautiful thing because not only does it, does it, does it keep us um, from spending time with people that are rejecting, but it, it brings us to people that are ready to accept and to receive. And it keeps you clear and the dust on your shoulders and on your feet um, from growing bitter and hardened and calcified, from being with the wrong people that you were never supposed to be with in the first place. In other words, Christ is great because he brings the right people to you and he sends the right people away from you. And if we continue to boast and, 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 and preach in the gospel, we're going to have the right people at our table and the wrong people to go. And so that's why these questions are not just important for them, but also important for us. Who, you know, are you now ready you know, to follow Christ? So he ends this uh, passage, not just with uh, the authority of Jesus and the instruction of Jesus, not just um, the rights of Jesus and then how to appropriate those rights rightly. I guess you could say the authority of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, but also the imperative of Jesus. Not just the what, the why, but also the how, or, or excuse me, not just the what and the how, but also the why. So verse 12 says, this is why, this is the imperative of Jesus. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and he healed them. And so as we alluded to earlier, that there's no such thing as a costless choice. Like every choice that you make, you should count the cost because there's a cost to it. But every choice that you make also has a cost of the non-choice. When you make that choice, you're not just making this choice and saying yes to this thing. You're also saying no to a whole lot of other opportunity costs. You're saying you're counting the cost of what it means to say no, yes, but you're also counting the cost of what it means to say no. And so here's what we need to assume is that um, if the treasure of going out and being sent into the neighborhoods, into the villages, into the nations is that people would be saved and healed and delivered, then the cost of non-discipleship is that by not going, there's going to be people that are not saved, not healed, and not delivered. There's no such thing as a choice that has no cost. And every choice that we make has a cost for the yes and also for the no. And this is the imperative that if we, if we go, there will be people that are saved. They will be healed and they will be delivered. But if we don't go, they won't be. And so I don't know if you've, you've ever experienced, you know, the, the, the privilege of, of making it through a struggle, you know, with Christ. And when you, when you pull back from one mountain into the valley into the next mountain for your next sending, you know, you do some inventory. That's just natural human um, uh, design is to, to reflect, I guess, and to debrief over what we've experienced and what we could learn from such things like this. And, and a couple things you realize about struggle is like, there's nothing really you can do about it to make it any faster or better. It just hurts. If you could go back in time, you would just tell yourself and you tell your spouse, like, don't take it out on each other. It just hurts. And it's not their fault that this person's wearing a mask and that person's not wearing a mask. Like, we all lost it <laughs> during COVID. And I think we all wish we could go back and just tell ourselves, like, you can't make this any better than it is, right? He's not fixing this, but he's using this. And you wish you could go back and just say, listen, like, this is not about fixing. This is about walking through this thing with faith rather than fear. And so you, go, you, you come out of that season 
And, and you recognize who is really in control. Like when COVID was going, it's not like he was like wringing his hands, upset about the politicians that weren't making it change or the medical system. He was allowing it to happen for the season that it was. And just like the dead girl and just like the wave and just like the demoniac, when he snapped his fingers and said COVID's over, it was just over. That's the season. And when you, and you recognize that point, it, it takes the weight off your shoulders. You can't end the season of suffering, but you can decide who you look to through it and what you prioritize in it. And, and, and you recognize that, that, that you know, what he was, he was doing um, all, all along um, was not to, to fix this problem, but, but to use it and to leverage it for our good. And so when you think about the opportunity cost, I think what, what Jesus is saying here is that, is that there is um, no way to go back in time and spare yourself that pain. But there is a way that you can go into somebody else's life now. There is a way to shake the dust of the offense and the hurt and the disenfranchisement and the disillusionment that you have. There is a way to choose faith even when fear is an option, because that's not faith unless fear is an option, and go back into somebody's life, to go into their dinner table, to shake the dust off your feet, and to take nothing but the power and the authority of Jesus, and speak the authority of Jesus of somebody going through the struggle that they're going in today. That there's a 20-year-old out there, and they don't need the solution, they don't need the fix, but they do need authority. They need somebody to come into their life and tell them, you're going to make it through this. They need to look in your eyes and see you unbullied, and unbribed, and unfooled, and make use of your struggle in your sending, and go to them and say, the one who is in charge... Um, is over all of this, and he's going to see you through this. That the suffering that you're going through is not for vanity. It is on purpose and is not being wasted. It is being used to mold you and make you. And there's nothing you can do to change this, and you didn't cause this upon yourself, but you can walk through this because the spirit of God that's in me is greater than he that is in the world. That discipleship ultimately is this. Between the mountains, or down this way, is really just a big life lesson that it's hard to get something out of the book and into your life, but this is what, how it works. The discipleship is the day-by-day revealing that he's bigger than our greatest problem and he's better than our greatest idol. And this has to move beyond our theology. It has to move into our life. And this is the privilege that we have to walk alongside other people, to shake the dust, to enter the house, to take nothing. If anything, to walk into somebody's life, to see them saved and healed and delivered because of the authority of Jesus in you. So I'll ask you uh, this one intentional question. I'll have the a band to come forward and, and ask the Spirit to speak to us around this question, but this is the question that really Lisa was asking earlier. But will your suffering breed bitterness or will it breed sending? That was the old pithy thing, and I, I almost, um, um, I'm reluctant to even say it because it's so trite or whatever, but you know, the, the egg and the potato act differently in boiled water based on what they're made of. And Romans 5 says that if you're justified by Christ, then then our perseverance produces hope and hope produces character because we have peace with God. That this suffering has not come to break us. It's not authorized to break us. It is authorized to make us. So it's our choice of of, of the vantage point that we want to look at it. Will your suffering breed bitterness or will it breed sin? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.